Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We live weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Monthly Weights. <laughs> I'm, I'm Will. This is Alex. We've had a few weeks of hiatus, but we are back in the studio at Casa de Burke. And today we are joined by a guest from New Zealand. His name is Chris Kennedy. And I was sent I was sent an Instagram post that he made shortly after he won nationals over there. And let's just say that there was a lot to unpack in the caption. Chris has had a really, really interesting life leading into his career as a lifter and his career centered around lifting. And so today we kind of just want to explore you know, what's going on on the way, what role powerlifting's had in the life that he leads. And he sounds like he's got a really interesting story, so we're keen to dig into it. Chris, thanks so much for joining us, man. No worries. Um, would you like to give everybody just a brief introduction to you? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so my name's Chris. Uh, I currently live in Auckland in New Zealand. Um, I've been living up here for almost three years now. I, I've done most of my life in the South Island um most recently down in Invercargill and currently um yeah I've just been competing in powerlifting for the last few years I do a little bit of work for the university uh, a bit of coaching on the side and yeah well that's understated um but, but on the way on the way you seem to have done some pretty cool things so I'm actually going to avoid spoilers I think this will be a story that's more fun if we get into it organically so why don't we start right at the very beginning you grew up you said in was it in Invercargill? Is that correct? Um, yeah, so I, I actually grew up in Christchurch initially. Um, I, I did my schooling, like primary school, all the way up to intermediate in Christchurch, which is um, about the middle of the South Island, the New Zealand. Um, I was there until I was about 13, 14. Um, then I moved to Ashburton, which was an hour down south from that. Um, and I pretty much did my entire time around that area, um, especially around Canterbury until, um, until my life got interesting. And well, what was childhood like for you? You know, were you close with your family? Did you play sports? Um, so my childhood was, I was pretty, um, like independent as a child. Like I would always do my own thing. Um, just cause we, I moved around a lot. Um, I mean, as a kid, so I went from school to school and I just kind of um, got comfortable in my own space. So a lot of my stuff as a child was just um, like self-learning, certain tasks, activities, um, sporting in that. I would just do stuff that was physical because I always enjoyed physical activity, but that didn't involve um, anything else. So I was quite into skateboarding as a kid. Um, but yeah. And did you have siblings? Um, yep. So I've got a, I've got a full blood sister. Um, we've got the same mum and dad. And then I've got, uh, five, um, half brothers and sisters that have got all the same dad, but, um, they've got different mums or a different mum. They've all got the same mum, but yeah. Cool. And then I'm sorry, I forget. Oh, you go on. Um, oh, you know, this, that, so I've got, yeah, like six brothers and sisters. Yeah. Cool. Um, I was going to say, I, I forgot the name of the place that you said you moved to from Christchurch, but when you went there, did you go with your whole family or just one of your parents? Um, so my entire rest of my family, they lived in Ashburton where we lived. Um, and it was only me, my mom and um, my sister, my full blood sister, they all lived in Christchurch. So 
um, all of us three all moved to Ashburton to kind of be close to everybody else or to where my dad was. Cool. And then you said you said that your life began to get interesting somewhere in your teenage years. Um, yeah. What happened there? And if you can identify maybe also what started contributing to your life getting interesting, you know, what led you to start behaving as you did would be interested. Yeah. So, um, like initially what happened is like, because I'd moved around a lot with schooling and everything, I always struggled to like make friends and everything. Um, so when I got into high school, um, it, it got even tougher again, but I found that the easiest way for me to make friends at that time was by just doing dumb stuff, like getting in trouble and that. Um, so I just started doing that for my first year of high school, which, you know, I ended up getting kicked out as a result. I mean, I got sent to a boarding school, which was another hour down south um, in Timaru. And then from here, this is just where things started spiraling um, as, as a pre-out-of-home stage. So from here, I just started um, trying to find out how to make more money and everything. I actually started uh, a weed business at high school. So I was at boarding school and I just started growing um, marijuana in my locker there. And then the plant started to grow and I actually started selling it to all the kids at school um, to buy parts and everything for my skateboarding because um, I'd skate pretty much every single day and I'd go for a lot of gear. Um, and I had no like sponsorships or anything then. So um, like the drug scene initially is what started my um, introduction into the like illegal life. Um, this led to me actually getting um, caught eventually after about six months of being at boarding school. And then I got completely expelled. Um, I mean, I struggled to get back into my old school again. So um, I ended up just being a bit of a bum. And that led to me getting kicked out of home at 16 years old. And then from here, I just, yeah, I just started sparring. I had no idea how to live. So um, I just went from job to job. And yeah, that's kind of where I started actually dabbling in the drug scene. Um, I never took drugs or anything back when I was selling it. Um, but I started to take drugs after I got kicked out of home. So you mentioned you were kicked out of high school. What did you do to, for that to happen? Um, so the first high school that I got kicked out of, it was just pretty much, um, I didn't get kicked out. I just got asked to leave. Um, but I just never went to classes. I was always disruptive in classes. Um, just pretty much just being an idiot in classes. I wasn't any help for the teachers or any of the students there. So I just got told that it will be better if I went to a different school. And that's when I went to an all-gender boys' school uh, with no females around. So less distractions. Um, I also found it interesting because you do have such a big family. Did mm. you find it very difficult when you got sent to boarding school to suddenly be apart from them? Yeah, like I was... Um, getting sent to boarding school was definitely a unexpected part for me at the time. Um and I was, I was definitely gutted about it because, you know, I was an hour away from everybody and I only got to see uh, my family maybe like once or twice a year, um, apart from the like school holidays and Christmas where I'd had to go back to home for um, a few months at a time. So it was definitely a struggle to like be away from everyone else doing all their stuff. Um, then I just had to like kind of do my own thing um, somewhere else again. I also want to ask some questions about the logistics of dealing drugs in high school. And I'm just going to frame this. We're not giving advice, career advice necessarily to anyone listening, but I'm curious, um, I'm curious, man, how, 
how you went about doing that because you said you're growing marijuana in your locker and presumably yeah. like you're also like doing transactions with students for cash and things. So yeah. like, how did that go? And were you ever like close to court in the process of making transactions? Yeah, so like how it actually all ended up starting was we were doing a class at school on um, like it was the effects of drugs and everything. Um, like a drug education kind of class. So we did like sex ed and then like drug ed. Um, and in that drug uh, ed class, they were talking about uh, like how marijuana kind of came about and how much it costs and everything. And that's when the idea kind of sparked in my head. Cause I'm like, well, like people pay like 25 bucks for this little tiny like bit of grass, you know, like, cause I barely even knew what it was. Um, but after this class, all the kids started talking about how they like would take it and everything and they would buy it. And I was like, oh, well, like you guys pay like this money for this. And they're like, yeah, you know, we do. And I'm like, okay, like it's interesting. Um, so I got, um, yeah, one of my friends, he talked about his dad doing it a lot. So he went for a home visit once and I was like, oh, do you reckon you could like get some seeds from him? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay then. So he went home for a home visit on a Friday. And I, I always stayed there on the weekends. And when he came back on a Sunday and he came back with his dad's whole stash. So we brought back a couple of ice cream containers full of weed. Um, and I had hundreds of seeds in there as well. And I'm like, shit, like, do you want me to give you anything for this? And he's like, no, no, just have it. And I'm like, okay, then like, sweet. So that's how everything kind of began. Um, and then we actually had a school project after this, which was uh, like, we had to do something to do with drugs and then make a poster about it and present it. So I used this as an opportunity to kind of um, get away with my researching how to grow it um, appropriately. So I did my school project on a task that helped me actually make money to kind of keep my skateboarding stuff. So I did all my research in there at school and classes and then I started just rolling everything up, weighing everything appropriately. Um, and then I just started figuring out how to germinate my seeds and figured out where the best place to put them at school was. Um, and then those same people that were in the drug ed classes, I just started off with them as customers. So I just asked if they um, wanted to buy some cheaper stuff from me. So I cut their dealer off and then, um, yeah, just started selling it to them where it got around the school. And then everyone was just um, going either through them to get to me or coming to me directly and just me selling them. But, I never really got caught um, or any close times where I did get caught doing it. Um, although there was one point where I was in the bathrooms at the hostel and because this is where I would kind of roll everything up and weigh everything in there in the bathroom because I could lock it. Um, but one time I actually forgot to lock the door and I had my entire like weed stash all laid out. My scales over there, my seeds over there. Um, a bunch of bags to um, put the weed in and a bunch of tinfoil to roll everything up. And the principal actually came into the bathroom and he was looking for somebody. And he was like, um, he just came over to the bathroom doors and he knocked on the door. And because I forgot to lock it, it actually opened um, wide up. But, you know, he didn't look in because he was like, didn't expect the door to open. But I'm just sitting there, door wide open, a bunch of weed just everywhere. And he's just to the side. And I just like froze and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not Jack. And then he closed the door and like left. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's pretty so much the closest that I actually ever, um, you know, had a like a close call to. 
Um, but the way that I actually got caught was that I just, I just got a little bit lazy later on. So it was raining one weekend and, um, I had my plants on the top of the bike shed roof out the back and I was like, oh damn, like I didn't want them to like kind of get damaged or anything. So I went outside and I just didn't want to do one at a time. So I just grabbed, um, a bunch of them and I went down the road and then I just literally walked right in front of everything. Cause I'm like, oh, it should be sweet. And I just walked past with a bunch of plants and I took them into the um, boarding house and then put them in my locker. I mean, the next day um, I went to the skate park and then I came back from the skate park and there was a cop car there and they were just waiting for me there. And what ended up happening is they seen me um, walking my plants into my room and then did some investigating and then I got caught. Well, uh, you answered all three questions that I had. That's amazingly <laughs> that entrepreneurial. Yeah, that was <laughs> really smart business plan. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like jokes until, aside. Until getting caught. Yeah, until getting caught. Jokes yeah. aside, though, that was like breaking bad level um, entrepreneurship. So that's that's actually quite impressive. You said um, you said after all that, you've been expelled mm. from school and you got kicked out of home. Um, yeah. Was that just a consequence of you having been expelled, or was there some conflict in your home life that made that worse? Um, a little bit of both. So I just. I just went kind of negative after this because I was like, not going to school anymore. Um, I wanted to just leave and just skate, but I couldn't do that. So I just, I was just, again, just disruptive at home. Um, you know, I, I, I say kicked out, but I, I could have probably gone back any time, but I, I was just too stubborn for my own good and just left for good and just kind of cut everyone off. So you mentioned that your love for skateboarding, did you ever do anything with that? Um, yeah, I used to compete in skateboarding back then. So I'll do a couple of competitions a year usually. Um, they were usually just like local comps. Um, but like my, after I got expelled from school, this kind of um, affected my potential for sponsorship um, because a lot of like work got around and like all the skate shops around there, it's pretty close community. So it was quite tough to get sponsored after this part. Um, and that's kind of when I started drifting away from it a little bit. So after about 16 years old. So man, you, you've left home and you said that's when you actually started dabbling in drugs yourself. Yep. Where were you living and what did you start doing? Yeah. So initially, um, I, cause I had no idea how to like live and how to like find flats and all that kind of stuff. I didn't even know like flatting existed. I was like looking for rental properties back then. Um, like no idea. I was just looking at the paper and that, um, I had a car at the time. So, uh, like just a little $700 little bloody in the same thing. And, um, so I like, oh, might as well just like stand here. Cause it's not like the most uncomfortable thing. And there's like plenty of parks and that around where I can just like park up and just like sleep. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time. She lived, um, in Ashburton as well, but she was still at home and still at school. And what ended up happening was uh, each night I was like sneaking into her house because um, her parents were at night shift. And I was like sneaking into her house each night. And then, um, yeah, one night I was like texting her to like like sneak over again when her parents went out. And she was being real weird. And I'm like, ah, oh, like, what's going on? Like, she was just sounding differently. And she's like, ah, oh, I can't wait for you to come over. And I'm like, ah, oh, like, you never say that. This is weird. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I'm like, oh, like I'm a teenage boy. So I was just thinking about like, you know, going over there. I mean, I like open the door and it's her mom. She opens the door because it turns out that her mom was like texting me the whole day. I mean, she's like, oh, so you're the boy that's been like sneaking over. And I'm like, oh, oh like, you know, I mean, her mom was like super scary. 
Um, but anyway, after this initial moment, we started bonding and her mom got me a job at a factory. So I started working night shift as well. And um, what I'll do is I'll just work all night and then in the factory. I mean, I'll go into my car and sleep for a couple of hours. I mean, I'll just skate all day. That was just my routine. Work and then, night. oh, sorry, you go on. Oh, yeah, just, just, yeah, just that. So work all night, sleep for a couple of hours until I woke up in my car. I mean, I'll just skate all day until I started working in. Cool. Um, and then, like you said, somewhere in there, you started dabbling in drugs yourself. It actually sounds like your situation had improved at that stage. When did mm. you start taking drugs? Um, so I started dabbling in weed at this time, just a little bit. Um, and I hadn't actually been drunk as well before I actually got stranded with the drugs before I got into alcohol. So yeah, I started dabbling in weed a little bit until, okay, just let me think. Sorry. So I was working in the factory. I mean, after a while in the factory, I met this guy who ended up becoming my best friend. Um, he's in prison still at the moment, but I met this guy there that ended up becoming my best friend. And one weekend, um, because my life was actually pretty solid at this point, like, apart from living in my car and that, my life was pretty solid. Um, so I met this guy, and then he's like, uh, "Do you do you want to come to Timaru for the weekend for a Halloween party?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, like I'm keen. Like I was only 16. I hadn't, I wasn't able to get into the clubs in there." And he's like, "Oh yeah, we can get you into the clubs." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, this, this sounds sick." Because he was like 18, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, for sure." So we um, all called in sick to the work that day. And then he took us to um, Timaru. He was actually from Timaru. And then we um, yeah, went to the clubs. I had speed for my first time at this point, And I had the absolute most best time of my life. Like getting into the clubs, like I was real young. And then I was like on this drug that I never had before. They just boosted me right up. And I just felt, um, you know, I just felt pretty awesome. And then the next day he's like, oh, I might just stay in Timaru, eh? And I'm like, what? Like, you, you're not going to go back to Ashburn? Like, you got a job there? And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, stay here. And I'm like, oh, shit, like, I don't even know how to get home. I mean, he's like, oh, you can just stay here too. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I'll just move in with you then. So I just, like, moved into Timaru randomly. And then um, from here I got another job in a fish factory around the area, which I went there for maybe, like, six months or so. <clears throat> and then I met this guy and I actually, I've thought about this a lot. I actually can't remember how I met this guy, but he lived across the road from us. His name is Trevor. And um, his, his like foster dad worked at the fish factory with us. And I, I guess somehow we like connected. But anyway, I used to hang out at his house all the time. And this guy was uh, a guy that had been in and out of jail for his entire life. He was older. He was about 35 years old. Um, an ex-gang member for the Black Power. And he was just a really hard man. Like, he was really nice. Um, but he was also, like, an alcoholic. So when he, like, got drunk, he was real violent. Um, but anyway, I, used to, I started hanging out with him quite a bit. So he became almost like a little father figure to me, um, more like a big brother. And he literally just lived across the road. So I would just chill with him on the weekends and that. Um, we did, like, a little bit of speed in that together every now and then. He would usually stay away from um, like really hard drugs or alcohol because that's when he knew that he changed. But the odd time he would get into like stuff like that again and just switch. 
Um, so there was a few times where he, like, for example, um, we went there for a party one night and he would get really drunk. And then after a certain point, he just switches, like, and just turns into, like, I always describe him as, like, the devil. Like, he just turns evil. Um, but anyway, one night we were there partying. And um, this is just one example. And we were just here partying. We are just drinking and, like, dabbling into a little bit of drugs. I mean, it got to the point where he just switched and everyone else had like left at this point it's always hard to like find a opening because he's just like always like so for long and everyone's just like thinking the same they're like oh as soon as like no one's talking to them they're like oh i gotta go now and they'll like leave because they knew what he's like um but anyway like one night we got like real wasted i mean um he just gets really intimidating and then he just tells me to beat him up and i'm like what like what are you like joking or whatever and he's like yeah you got to beat me up. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, like I'm not going to beat you up. And he's like, and I'm like, I, I don't even think I can. I'm like this little twig, you know, like I can't even do anything. And he's like, you're going to beat me up or I'm going to beat you up right now. Cause he, he just needed some kind of rush, I think. And I'm like, no, nah, like I can't like, I can't do it. And then he, um, yeah, threw a punch at me and started beating me. And he's like, now you're going to beat me up or I'm going to keep going. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, so I mean, I just had to go. I just yeah, started beating him up and hitting him in the face and just kept on going and going. He kept on making me going. And that part there just kind of scarred me a little bit. Um, so I eventually he was just down on the ground. Um, there was blood everywhere and everything. I mean, I went back into my place across the road and I was just like semi-traumatized. Um, but that's when I started dabbling a little bit in speed a little bit more because I didn't want to sleep. So I was like looking out my window because he lived just across the road. Um, and I always just look, used to look out my blinds to make sure he's not like coming over. Cause I thought he was like, I don't know how to kill me or something. Just, I just was just like scared. Um, but it went on for a little while and I was just taking more and more and more. Um, we ended up making up again. So he, he seen me down the road again after a wee while. And I'm like, um, he just asked me where I'd been. I'm like, yo, like, do you remember what happened last time? And he's like, he couldn't remember anything. And I'm like, well, I told him, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. I'm like, oh, like, okay. Like, and then we just started hanging out again. I mean, this went on for another few weeks again. I mean, um, we went out again for another night. We went to a pub this time in a public place. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool. Um, and then he had a girlfriend uh, with him as well that was about his age. She would have been about 35 or whatever. And I was still like 17, 16 or whatever. I mean, um, in the pub, he just switched again. And then he started accusing me of um, like looking at a girlfriend and I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, like I'm not like looking at her. And then he'll be like, oh, so you don't want to look at her. And I'm like, ah, like, no, nah, like I, she's, she's nice. I mean, he's like, yeah. oh, so you think she's nice. And I'm like, ah, like I'm just, this is like a mind screw for me. Uh, I couldn't win. And then, um, then he's like, oh, no, nah, it's all good. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I was like, he just used to always do that. I like, just mentally like destroy you. And then we just started walking. There was me, him, another guy, another young guy, and his partner. And we just started walking home at three in the morning. Um, and then we get down this alley. And then he just pins me against the wall. And he's like, I want to break your collarbone right now. And I'm like, ah, oh, like, shit, like, don't do that. I mean, then he just starts laughing again. And I'm like, ah, oh, like, this is like screwing on my head, eh? I mean, I'm like, I couldn't just do anything. So I just like, I'm walking with him. I mean, he stopped us again. And then he's like, you and you talking to my other friend are gonna fight and i'm like what like that's my friend and he's like yeah no you guys are gonna fight no, i'm gonna bash you both and i'm like oh shit like 
I don't know what to do. I mean, his friends, like the other guy was like the same thing. He's like, fuck, like this guy's like my mate. I don't want to beat him up. Cause he was like normal as well. I and mean, then I'm like, dude, just like, just, just hit me. Cause I'm not going to hit him back. So I just didn't want to do it again. Um, so I mean, I just let him beat me up. I mean, after he beat me up, I just like ran for like miles. Like I just keep running and running and running all the way until like we got in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I just started walking back home. I mean, I went back home again. I mean, I went through my same routine. I started taking more drugs, but I started getting a little bit more acclimatized to speed. So this is when I just messaged my friend, um, that guy that I moved to Timaru with, and I asked him if he knew where to get anything stronger. I mean, he introduced me to a girl in Ashburton, which we ended up driving to Ashburton, and I managed to um, start taking pee. And start, oh, taking, start taking what? Uh, pee, methamphetamine. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I just want to punctuate that because there's so much, like, I think quite incredible stuff in that story. Mm. Um, but I want to backtrack a little bit. There's, you know, you, you said you started taking more like speed, almost out of paranoia because you were so worried about it was Trevor across the road kind of coming to get you. At the mm. same time, when you were seeing Trevor's behavior and, you know, this dude's been in and out of prison, he's a violent guy who's obviously got all these problems. When you were seeing his behavior, did it ever spark this thing in you of like, I don't want to live a life like this. Like, I don't want to engage in these same behaviors. Um, like, honestly, back then, I still kind of gave him the, like, I look up to you kind of thing because he was real, like, it was, it was such a weird situation because he was real, like, strong and protective, like, 90% of the time. But it was only that 10% of the time where he was just absolutely insane. So at the time, it didn't kind of override the good parts about him. That's why I kind of kept on drifting back towards him, especially when he was sober. It's one of those very like manipulative cycles of behavior where people create dependence on you yeah. and then they rip it away. And it's like the two of them give them more power. It's the unpredictability that makes you rely on them when, when you're vulnerable. Yeah. Hey? Exactly, yeah. That's kind of what happened there. It was just like a, a big kind of like manipulation, I guess, when I look back at it now, but... Yeah, at the time, I didn't really think about that, to be honest. So you you ended up um, starting using methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. um, somewhere along the track here, you got um, you ended up being sent to prison. Big spoiler. Um, yeah. I'd love you to sort of fill the space between those two occurrences. Like how much how much more time passed? Mm -hmm. um, like from when I first started dabbling in P to when I got sentenced. Mm. Um, so it would have been about two and a half years from when I first started until I actually went to prison. And was that, was that time like a constant downward spiral or was there one particular incident that had you caught and sent to prison? Um, it was a real up and down in a couple of years. So I kind of, um, so at this point as well, cause initially when I went to Ashburton at that time, I didn't come back. I just stayed there. I just left all my stuff in Timaru. And um, from here, and uh, you know, I obviously like left my job as well. So I, I was back at like jobless and I was living with my drug dealer. Um, she was a chick and we ended up actually dating. Um, but here from here, it was just a, just a wild ride of just moving from place to place and doing thing to thing. So I ended up from here for a while um, from 
there I moved back to like Tamuka again. Then I started getting into other drugs. Um, so I just started expanding into like acid. So LSD I got quite into um, because of the hallucinogenic side of it, I guess. I was taking quite a bit of that and I actually started to, um, my personality started to change at this time, I think. And then from here, I ended up moving up to Nelson for a little while. Um, same same drill, we're just like, randomly one day, um, another guy that I used to hang out with, we're just like, oh, yo, we should just like move to Nelson. I'm like, okay, like, I was just always up for anything. Um, but Nelson was the time where, because yeah, Nelson was the time that I actually reached out to my family after um, those amount of years. So me and my friend ended up getting into a, a massive fight up there because he got really into these drugs that started to get popular at the time called BZP. I don't know if you've heard of that before. It's like a party drug. It used to be illegal, um, but they made it illegal and it started selling on the black market a lot. Um, and I, I can't actually remember how this came across, but in Nelson, we randomly met this drug dealer and he's like, Hey, you want a job? And we're like, yeah. And then we just started selling his drugs. Um, but to this day, I actually can't remember how we met this guy, but he just gave us a bunch of drugs to sell and he disappeared. We never seen him again. Eh? But we just had all this drugs, like massive bag of it. And um, we started selling it a little bit. But my friend, he started taking a lot of it. And we're all living at this guy's house in Nelson, just in the garage. And he just started taking like countless amounts of it. And he just started changing a little bit and just started getting like real paranoid in that. I mean, um, one night at a, a party, um, uh, we had like an alteration or whatever. And he just started... We just started not liking each other from here and then we just organized this big fight and then we met up and had this big fight and he beat me up um it was pretty bad i mean from here because i was living with them um you know i couldn't really go back there so i ended up with no car and i was homeless at this point and i hadn't actually done that much because most of the time when i was homeless i had like a car which was like still shelter um but at this point i had like absolutely nothing and i had no job no income i wasn't on the benefit or anything um and I was like, just like hungry and everything. So then this is when I reached out to my dad and I rang up my dad and he got me a bus ticket um, down in Invercargill. So this is when he moved to Invercargill. I moved down there for a little while. Um, this was about maybe, or maybe a year before prison, I would say, or just under a year. And I started getting in a good routine again down there. Um, I mean, after a wee while, my friend got out of prison again. I mean, I just ditched out of nowhere. Um, I just left my family again to um, go to my friend in Dunedin at this time. And yeah, this is just where I just like, I guess that was the point where I just started sparring again because I just felt guilty for uh, leaving my family again. Um, and I felt like I couldn't go back, even though I could have, but I felt like I couldn't go back. And then I just started spiraling. Um, I ended up in Ashburton somehow. And this is just where I, it was the same thing again. My friend disappeared, the one that got out of prison. So I had no friend anymore. And I was homeless with no job. Um, I had no shelter or anything. So I'm like, shit, like, I don't know what else to do. I was at a party that night. I left the party and I had like nowhere to go. So I'm like, fuck. I ended up at this girl's house. Then I had to leave in the morning early. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like, I actually don't know what else to do. So that's when I just was like, I need to kind of do something. So I just decided to go to prison. And when you say you just decided to go to prison, 
what did like what did that entail did you go out and deliberately commit a crime and get caught or did you go to the cop station and say i've been doing naughty shit put me in jail like how's it work yeah so i, I did a little bit of brainstorming at the time because i i really had to think hard about this one here even though i was like you know i wasn't in the good headspace but i still had the ability to think and i knew that i needed like i needed time because like i'd been all over the show so i'm like I need at least a couple of years just to like chill somewhere. I don't want to ask for help. I, I should have asked for help at the time. Like I could have just gone home and just done it there. Um, but I was just like, you know, stubborn boy. Um, so I'm like, I need to do something that is going to give me a couple of years in prison. Um, I don't want to hurt anyone or anything. I don't want to do anything that's like, like real bad. So I'm like, I could just, do something in a dairy with a little weapon um, from far away and just show the weapon on camera. Um, I mean, this should get me a few years in prison. So I just thought about that. I thought about the best place to do it because I, I knew Ashburton quite well and I didn't want to go into a dairy where I thought something bad might have happened. I wanted to make sure that I picked a dairy where nothing nothing bad could happen. Like, Because I've seen you know stories of people going into and the areas of a weapon and then it just turns bad you know so I, I didn't want something like that to happen so i chose a dairy um that i could do it at and i kind of did it the way where it didn't seem like i was doing it on purpose because i didn't want that to kind of be what came across because i didn't want that to impact my sentence and i just i just honestly didn't want to look like a you know a weirdo or whatever that name because that's just weird right so i um I just planned it out accordingly so make it seem like I wouldn't like well, I wasn't doing it on purpose to get caught so I just did it near a school I put all my clothes in there at a school nearby it was a Sunday at this time and I um went in I, I had real long hair at this time I had dreadlocks um so I put on my hair in this beanie to make it look like I had short hair had sunglasses on I mean I just went into the dairy and I just asked for the money I presented the knife in front of the camera and um they just they they gave the money over and like nothing bad happened i was in there for probably two or three minutes and then i got out of the dairy and i just ran away um back to the school and i changed my clothes and everything and i went back to um the motorway and just put my thumb out to hitchhike and i was hoping i'd get caught at this point but surprisingly i actually didn't get caught and i ended up in the car and then i ended up in dunedin um i mean i yeah i was just there for a little while again i had a little bit of money to keep me going for a wee while i mean i still hadn't got caught at this point i mean i just was like ah oh, like so i just rang up the crime stoppers anonymous and i'm like hey there's a guy in um dunedin he said that he did this robbery and just told them where i was and everything i mean yeah the next day i just had the cops came over and they arrested me from there so so to you going to prison was almost like a self-imposed like therapy is that is that the way you were looking at it yeah like i just needed because i'd been moving from place to place and from job to job and just all over the south island i was like because in my head i guess at the time i was always running away from something and i was just trying to get to a new location um and i was you know always trying to start a new life i never had like bad intentions or anything but i was always going from place to place but this never worked out for me so I'm like, yeah, I just need somewhere, like one place where I can just 
sort my stuff out, just think for a, multi, a, a long period of time. That's where I'm like, yeah, prison would be, you know, that place to be because I'll be stuck there. I can't leave. I have to actually deal with my stuff. Um, and yeah, that was kind of my approach at the time was, you know, somewhere where I didn't have the choice to leave. And did you ever, when you had sort of almost accidentally made it to Dunedin with this money, did you ever think of actually just cutting and running and keeping the money you had? Nah, I was still, um, I actually did a few other things in Dunedin. Like I was, I was doing everything I could to get caught for something. So I was like, um, I robbed another dairy in Dunedin, which I got done for as well, but it was just with, um, like just a theft one. So I just asked for cigarettes and I'll pass the cigarettes and I just run. Um, but yeah, like just obviously doing dumb things just to, to try and get caught, you know, but it didn't really cross my mind because I, I, you know, I'm stubborn like by nature. So I just, once I had something in my mind, I'm like, I need a, I need somewhere for a long period of time to chill. And that's kind of what I focus on at that point. So it's, you know, to somebody like myself and I presume Alex prison sounds like quite a scary place. Actually, it's certainly not somewhere that I would want to go when you got there. Was it, was it shelter in the way that you thought it would be or was it intimidating? And what were the other people in there in there for? Yeah, so like before I went into prison, I had painted a picture in my head of what it's like, according to like the movies and everything. Um, when I went in, it was different. It was still really intimidating because, um, you know, when you go in, you just see all these people that have been there for a wee while and there's, you know, they've got tattoos all over their faces and they just look real rough and like that the intimidating part was that um but it was definitely not like because what i painted in my head was that i'm just going to walk into this unit and i'm going to get stabbed and i'm going to die like straight away like you know it's over exaggerated it um but when i walked in like people were like gymming over there like working out outside there's people like playing cards people were heating up their cheese sandwich like i'm like oh like people were like normal people um so my my thought of prison changed quite quickly when i moved in like i was still scared um but it did change pretty quickly when i went i'm like okay like i'm i'm all good like people here seem like you know actual humans um but the people in there they're on just like a wide variety of things so when i went in um initially i was in the high security unit so this was just and i guess like no matter what unit you have a big variety of um crimes in that in that place but it's all the way from um you know there's a lot of murderers in there um that have been in there for a long time um some fresh ones as well otherwise there was like um people in there for like gbh which is like um grievous body harm which is like stabbing or or something like that um manslaughter accidental killings um people in there for like drink driving and killing their best friend by accident, um, by crashing, um, just a common assault to car theft, to just real small time crime as well. So it was a big variety of people in there from the real extreme to the, the real minor. So I wanted to ask about training, but you said something that sparked another question. Do the inmates treat uh, people differently depending on what they're in there for? Um, to a certain they do have multiple units that have got like protective city and they've got mainstream. So in mainstream, that's like where I was at, which was just like the people that I was talking about before. 
but they've also got protective custody, which is completely different. Um, that's where like the like pedophiles and like rape and all that kind of stuff. They're there. So they're judged completely differently, but they don't associate at all with mainstream prisoners. Um, the crimes in prison, they do to a certain degree get judged. So what I went in there for was okay because it was for a longer period of time or for like, you know, kind of two years plus is kind of like what they would say, like respectable, I'd say. But the smaller the sentence, the less like respect you kind of get in there because you just, they look at you like a little bit of a waste of space because prison is essentially the home to these people, right? So it's where it's where we're going to be for multiple years. So it's almost like a little community. So it has to work. So if we're continuously getting people that are just doing things that they don't need to do because they're just dumb, like, you know, someone that's got a perfectly good job, but they go and steal a car or like, you know, like just crimes like this where it's like, um, like petty crime where they're, they've got no issues um but they're just doing dumb stuff just to look cool around their friends and then go to prison and then for a couple of months and then they get out so those types of people in there didn't get looked at the same as someone that was in there because like um they murdered somebody or like something happened in the heat of the moment and they're there for years or you know so that's kind of how people got treated differently in there by duration of time and also intentions behind the crime as well so did you make it clear to the other prisoners that you wanted to be there? You actually wanted to be in there? Um, I did when I got asked because I, I was always quite open. I think people found that quite weird. Um, but also that, that kind of intrigued them a little bit as well. And that kind of helped me um, make more friends in there, I guess, because they're like, oh, shit, like this guy. Because despite what people think out here as well, people and especially the people that have been in there for a long time, they they don't want people to come in there. Like they want people to sort themselves out and they want people to, you know, especially the people that have been in there for like 10 years plus for like murder or something. They're real passionate about not letting young people come back in. So what they'll do in there a lot is they'll give young people a real hard time, but purely for the fact so that they don't come back. So, you know, they might beat somebody up for a a long period of time just to scare them away from prison, you know, so stuff like that. Seems like a very bizarre honor code. (laughs) You know, because on the one hand, you're respected by virtue of doing very serious crimes that have you in prison for a long time. And on the other hand, the people who do that, who supposedly respect each other, don't want other people to join their ranks because they wouldn't wish it upon anybody else. It seems seems quite bizarre and quite hypocritical, really, as well. Yeah, like it's it's kind of a different type of respect. It wasn't like a respect like, like, you know, good job kind of thing. It was more like a respect. (laughs) I would hope not. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it was more like a, oh, shit, man, you must have been in, like, a real dark place. Like, we're going to look after you for the next, you know, lifetime kind of thing. Opposed to, um, yeah, like, oh, shit, you're just an idiot for doing that dumb thing. Like, you know, we're going to beat you up every day. And was was this where you started exercising? Like, in my mind, the shape of this narrative is you've gone to prison to, to try and remake yourself and you see there are people working out. Mm. Was that where you started thinking of doing it yourself? Yeah, so my very first day in prison was when I had my very first workout. What happened? um, Yes, so when I went in, it was during the day. So it was an unlock period. So in high security, you got um, four hours out a day, broken up into two lots of two hours, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. So when I arrived in there and got all through the processing, I got in there just in time for the afternoon um, unlock. So everyone was out of their cells in the unit. 
Um, I went in there and I put all my stuff in the cell and then people would just start scoping you out straight away, asking you what you got and trying to get your um, nicotine patches off you and everything. But then after that part there, I just went um, downstairs because my friend that had been in there before, he gave me a couple of tips of what to do. And he said the last thing that you want to do is like stay in your cell because that looks as like antisocial. And he's like, if you can, join in the workout crew. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, so when I went in there, I'm like, shit, how do I do this? So I just um, seen people working out and I just literally just went outside and just sat down um, because I kind of knew that they would eventually like come and scope me out and see if they could break me or something. Like they would associate themselves with me somehow if I sat down there in the yard. So I did that. I went outside and I just sat down. I mean, uh, a guy came over and he's like, you want to join on the workout? Because I was just like this real skinny little white boy. Like, I think in their head, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll break this guy. Like, make him, like, suffer kind of thing. Um, so I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll join in. I mean, we did the workout, which was, to this day, the most intense workout I've ever done in my whole life. Because um, I don't have any weights in there. It was just, like, bodyweight stuff and, like, cardio. And, you know, I'd been smoking cigarettes for the last few years and had done, like, zero exercise. And I had, like, no muscle in my body. So it was just, like killed me um but anyway we went through it for the entire um part until the unlock um about 15 to 20 minutes in i spewed up for my first time i mean like another five minutes later i spewed up again i mean like another five minutes later i spewed up again um but i just kept on going trying to keep up because i didn't want to like lose my chances of having friends in this unit for the rest of the time so i'm like i've just got to keep pushing even if i can't like move or whatever um and i kept on doing that and i just kept on spewing and spewing and just kept on like trying to go and i was like on the ground and i was like dying and all that kind of stuff um but yeah that's that's how i got onto the workout crews um because after that period they're like oh yeah you're like all good so then i just started joining in with them from that time period onwards did you guys work out together every day yeah yeah so it was um one guy that was pretty much running the workout crew he was um in the mongrel mob down there um and yeah people would just come in and we'll do it every single day some people wouldn't but he was there every single day without a doubt and yeah he would teach you things as well like he would give you stuff to read um show you why you're doing things tell you what you're working on um and we'll get pretty creative with stuff like because we had no gym so he would show us how to like work muscles with like our jerseys or like you know random stuff and yeah so um what was i going to say Oh yeah. So did these, these people become like the core of your friendship group in the, in the prison? And what was the culture like amongst the people who trained together? It sounds like this guy was very nurturing. Yeah. So like this guy was, cause I was only in this unit for, cause they move you around a lot. Um, so this wasn't the, the Needham prison when I initially went in. Um, so they, he became a big part of my workout part at the start later on he ended up stabbing somebody and he um got taken away from this unit because there was big dramas here between two gangs so between that gang and um the opposing one the black power so he ended up leaving this unit um after doing that so then it just became um pretty much just me on my own after this and a few of the other guys that would come in every now and then um but yeah they move you around quite frequently after this part i got moved to the christchurch prison um so i put in a um uh what do you call a request to transfer you can do that if you want to be closer to family or whatever but 
you don't have to actually be close to the family. You just have to say family is there and they have to move you. Um, especially if you get like over the unit, you're like, okay, it's time for a change now. So that will move you. You'll still be in the same security class classification, uh, but just somewhere else. So I put in a request to go to Christchurch prison. Um, so I mean, I yeah, got moved down there, up there, sorry. I mean, yeah, found another workout crew and then started um, you know, working out with them for a wee while again. Every unit's kind of got a workout crew, no matter where, and they're all pretty similar. Like they just, they'll work out the way that they have learned how to work out and they'll like generally teach you like what you're doing. And, um, you know, if you want to ask questions from them, you know, you just talk together because everyone that's a part of these workout crews just loves training. You know, they love learning and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just with the resources that we have in there, which is like just like men's health magazines and a couple of other books and stuff. But um, yeah, so we just, yeah, unit to unit, workout to workout, and you just get real close to the workout crew until one of you have to move on. And so when you moved to Christchurch, sorry, Alex, when you moved to Christchurch, did you finally have access to any weights or were you still working body weight only? Um, body weight only pretty much the whole time because I don't know if they, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently they took the weights away from um, the gyms because I think in, inmates were getting too intimidating or too big or something. Um, but it's, I don't think there's weights in any units anymore. It was pretty much just pull up bar. And if you're lucky, a dip bar. I, like, I'd have thought as an outsider that they would take the weights away because you could use them as a weapon or something. Like if you got a dumbbell and beat somebody with it, you could oh, kill yeah. them, you know, but I don't know. Yeah, even when there when there was weights here, it was always just machine weights. Right. So free weights have never been um never been a part, I think, for so many years. And how many um, different prisons did you go to over the three years? Uh three. So I went to I started off in Dunedin Prison, um, and then Christchurch Prison. I mean, I finished in a Chicago Prison before I got released. So you you obviously developed a love of training when you were doing this. And mm -hmm. some part of it initially was that craving for a social connection. But mm -hmm. when you lost a large part of your workout crew, you said it was basically only you and then some other people would come and go. What was it that you really yeah. loved about that process? Uh, routine. Just for routine was the biggest thing because every single day I knew I had something that I had a purpose to do. So I'd let like, tomorrow, I've got a reason to wake up now. I'm gonna wake up and have a workout if somebody joins me or if someone doesn't, but that's my reason for waking up every day and getting up out of bed. Did you see changes in your body and in how you felt quickly? Um, not really quickly. Eh? Like everyone would say that I would like look like muscly and shredded and all that kind of stuff, but I could never, I always seen my old self, you know, it's quite a weird, I don't know if you've had experienced this before, like, but you always see your old self, either my face and I would always see my old face um because my face changed quite a lot in um prison like when i first went in um they took your mug they take your mug shot shot and um when i got transferred to christchurch the first time they didn't believe that the that i was there for a transfer they're like you know this isn't you and i'm like yeah it's like me i'm here for a transfer of like literally just came for processing they're like no no i mean they found that it was me and they had to redo my um my, my mug shot again but to me i still look the same so yeah, yeah. I actually have the Not opposite really. problem. Um, I personally think I look staggeringly big and shredded almost all the time. But most people that I interact <laughs> with actually say that I look pretty normal. 
um, and probably haven't changed much. Definitely personally. so Paulo. Yeah. So, so no, that's an experience I can't relate to. <laughs> but Chris, you, um, yeah. you said that like working out gave you a reason to wake up in the morning. Um, so mm. it sounds like there was a sort of a big mental change associated with training for you. Might have started to give you a bit of like a sense of self-esteem and purpose that had been lacking for a long time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the biggest thing that changed a lot was just like the confidence in myself as well. Like getting that same, um, feeling that I would have got from a pharmaceutical as I do like, like naturally, you know, from endorphins and everything. So I'd feel a pretty similar buzz. Like, um, I used to question myself all the time. Like, why did I start this like earlier, you know, like, um, but yeah, no, confidence definitely grew from the exercise and it came me a similar feeling to, um, I used to do drugs. So unless Alex have another question about prison, I'd like to zip ahead to, to when you, when you were released. Um, mm-hmm. I can imagine that it would be amazing and very challenging to return to a world after three years that you hadn't been involved in and that things might've changed mm-hmm. around you and your, your relationships with other people might've changed as well. What was it like for you? What did it feel mm-hmm. like? Yeah, so um, two years out of my three-year sentence, so I ended up getting a parole um, hearing uh, two-thirds of the way in. Um, but yeah, when I got released, I got released on home detention, so I had a bracelet around my ankle, and it was really weird. Like, when they release you from prison, it's like there's very minimal build-up into it. It's just like one day... The, the night before they're like, Hey Kennedy, you're getting released tomorrow. And it's like, okay, pack your stuff. And it's like, okay. I mean, the next day you, um, you go through the processing room. It's a really fast process. You've got your stuff in a little box. Um, so all I had in my little box was just a little Sudoku book, um, a couple of drawings and yeah, I think that was about it. I don't really have much. I mean, they, they give you the processing room. You take your prison clothes off and they give you the clothes that you got arrested in. So the exact same clothes, they smell like alcohol and cigarettes and everything. You put these on and then they just, um, yeah, they give you your, what they call steps to freedom, which is a $350 check to let you last for two weeks. And then they just say goodbye. And then you just walk out of prison, like just like that. So when I walked out, um, it was just way too fast, like the experience of walking out. So I just walked out and I had no idea what to do. Um, I just sat outside the prison for a few hours until my dad finished work. I mean, um, I got picked up and then, yeah, went home, uh, got my bracelet put on from probation. And then life from this period onwards was literally pretty similar to how I was in prison. So I spent a lot of time in my room initially. Um, things like door handles, like... Even I wasn't there for long, so I can only imagine what it's like for someone that's been there for a really long time. But even just like door handles are like really weird to you know use because you're so used to your door being open um, by the guards. So like having the option to like turn a door handle and like you know, leave was real weird. So I'd just spend a lot of time in my room just with the door closed um, in isolation. Um, but yeah, like and then then you've got the internet when you come out, like you don't have the internet inside, like. Um, there's traffic, you know, you don't have traffic inside, like just all this real weird stuff is just stuff that you haven't thought about for a while, you know, like you cross a road and you don't even think about like 
for a few days at least just like looking left to right to make sure you don't get hit by a car you know because you're just so used to just walking freely yeah yeah um sounds like you did try and keep a bit of your routine from prison you you said you were staying in your room a lot uh Bruce, mm. you kept training and doing similar things is that true yeah yeah so at home because i was on home detention um i made a little pull-up bar in the garage and i pretty much did the exact same workouts that i was doing in there um my exact same routine so i just do my pull-ups and my push-ups and do some cardio in there and yeah all bodyweight stuff and when you say home detention were you living with your family is that who yeah i was living with my dad down in Chicago. so you had to um have a approved address um to get out to and yeah i reached out to my dad and i could do it there so it was all good and how long were you on home detention for uh, six months and do they check on you regularly or how does that work uh, yeah so you had to do uh check-ins with probation so initially it was once a week so you have to go into probation i mean they just you know pretty much just ask how you're doing what what you're doing um in regards to your parole plan um you know how you feel and all that kind of stuff like just a real short like half an hour kind of catch up once a week for i actually can't remember how long but then it became twice a week i mean it became I mean, sorry, once a fortnight. I mean, it became once a month. I mean, after a while, it's just, yeah, you're good to go now kind of thing. So at what point did you start thinking about like building a career and building a future? Um, so that was many years after I got released. So when I first got released, I had to um, have a plan ahead in order to get my parole accepted so I could get released. And my plan going forward was to do a course or to do to get a job, one or the other. Um, so when I very first got released, I was quite lucky that I got released at the very start of the year. And um, part of my parole was to go find a course. And in Chicago, they have a place called SIT, which is a little um, study institution thing. And then um, they'll do an open night. So I got to go to that for one night. And I was just looking at all the courses that they do there. And there was one, um, it's a sport and recreation, it's exercise science. And I went up there and I like, asked the person like what involves and all that. And um, had like a little interview and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm pretty keen to do this one here. Like do the degree in um, sport and exercise. Um, but yeah, I got declined from that one there because I didn't finish school. But then they gave me another option where I could do a certificate course, which was um, a level four if I passed this English um, test thing, which I did, I mean, I got accepted into this little certificate course, um, which I did for the year. Cause I'm like, I had, I had to do something and I enjoy exercise. So I'm like, I might as well learn a little bit more and get a little um, certificate out of it. So I did that for the year. I got um, chances for probation to get my home detention kind of um, extended through the day. So during the day, my bracelet would turn off and I could go to classes and then I'll come home. I mean, eventually I got my bracelet taken off. I mean, I, for the remainder of the year, I got to finish my course. Um, at the end of the year, I was like, oh, like I might as well like do the diploma if I can. So I applied for the diploma, which was the next step up. I mean, they're like, yeah, you can do it. I'm like, okay, sweet. So that was my entire next year doing the diploma. Um, part of the diploma was like a little placement in the gym. And I had like no idea that I could like work in the gym or anything because I'm like, in my head, I'm like a, a criminal, um, ex-criminal. So I'm like, you know, working with people is going to be impossible. Um, but I'm like, oh, I might as well like ask if I can do it for free. Because um, I like did a little bit of research about it. And I'm like, you know, volunteer work, you don't have to disclose criminal records. So I'm like, okay, cool. 
So I went into the gym and I'm like, hey, can I like vacuum your floors and I like, do some cleaning there for my placement? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you can. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that's when I started lifting a little bit of weights as well in there. So I had only done like bodyweight training that before. I'd never done anything like weight training. Um, and I just started like integrating some stuff that I was learning from course. Um, while I was like vacuuming the floors and that, sometimes I'd see something and then I'd help people out in the gym. I mean, um, that would be like good help. And then they would start asking me more questions. I mean, other people started asking me questions and then I started to kind of do personal training there, but you know, for free as part of my thing. Um, and when I finished my diploma, I mean, I'm like, oh yeah, I might as well see if I can get into the degree, applied for the degree. I mean, I got into it. I mean, I started the bachelor's degree. Um, at the same time, I was just um, training people for free along the way as well, because just because I enjoyed it, I didn't think anything of a career at this point. Um, but then about a year into my degree, someone um, wanted to pay me. So I'm like, oh, cool, like I can actually get paid for this. So then I um, started actually getting employed by a gym down there and I started paying rent and I actually got a couple of clients. I mean, I was starting to do personal training. And I didn't still think anything of a career at this point. I'm just like, I'm just doing this just to get experience, but also make a little bit of money to get by a study. Um, so I finished the first year of my degree. I mean, the second year of the degree, I um, started doing more training. So people, I started working for a gym. I mean, I did some group fitness classes at this point. So they put me through uh, Les Mills courses. And then I actually became a Les Mills instructor for about a year. So I was like teaching body pump and um, <laughs> this little... CX works ab class to all these moms and like um, body combat, like it's real random. Um, but yeah, how so similar started... for those of us <laughs> who've done a body combat class? How similar are the punches and kicks you throw in body combat to the ones that you might throw in like a proper fight in you know in an alley or in prison? Um, like similar in regards to like movement, but like without the impact, it's like. <laughs> If you do something of impact, you just get thrown off. <laughs> I felt like I did a body combat class once. I was like roped into it. And I really felt like I was doing more like, I can't even describe the motion that I'm doing. <laughs> I was just making my hands go in a circle. Like there was a speedball in front of them, but I was yeah, not yeah. punching anything. <laughs> yeah, I would not recommend it for a self-defense class, but. Right, okay. <laughs> go on, so you're teaching Les Mills. Yeah, so like teaching Les Mills classes for a while. I met this other German doing like a little bit of PT there too for my second year of my degree. And then um, this thing online came up about like, this is where I think like online training started to, you know, slightly start kicking off a little bit. And I've seen a few things about people starting it in there. And I'm like, Oh, cool. Like this looks pretty cool. Cause you can like do your own business from home and you can like, cause I didn't think I could travel either at this point. So I'm like, Oh, this gives me the opportunity to like, socialize with people overseas and I like branch out overseas without actually traveling because I can't have my criminal record. So I'm like, I started looking into this. Um, the gym that I was working at, they weren't too fond about it because, you know, they didn't like the fact of you doing something else while you're working there. So I just bit the bullet and just like, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go all into online training. Um, I left the gym and then I just started building the business up a little bit for my second year. Um, I needed a little bit of money to fund this. So I started working night shifts for the, um, the Meatworks. And then, um, yeah, I just spent like my entire second year and the start of my third year um, of my degree, like literally working all night um, at the Meatworks. And then all day I'll train people. 
I'd train myself and then I'll have like a sleep for like an hour or two and then I'll redo it again. And then it comes to the weekend and then I'll just sleep the entire weekend and then just redo it again the next day. Um, but because I was everywhere and I was talking to everybody, um, people just started to get to know me. And then for my final year of my degree, I got a internship for a place down there called Academy Southland, which was like the high performance area for Southland, which trains like some up and coming athletes. Um, and they had tires with like the, like the Nepal team down there, Southern Steel Nepal team. Um, I mean, another guy actually approached me from there when I was doing my internship and to helping out with the Southland Sharks NBL basketball team. So I was just like being like a yes man, getting experience through front and center, um, just doing a voluntary. Um, I mean, this is where I started thinking about the, the future and the career, which was the start of my uh, final year of my degree. And I'm like, okay, like I'm enjoying studying. Um, I'm enjoying training people. I'm enjoying like the sporting part of things as well. I mean, I started looking into like post-grad stuff. Um, so career-wise, I just wanted to do like strength and conditioning and training. I mean, I looked at a couple of places. Um, the Auckland kind of appealed to me because I'm like, oh, a big city. I've never been to the North Island before. And I was like a challenge and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, I yeah, kept on working at the meatworks and personal training and just started saving up as much money as I could. Um, made sure I passed all my stuff for the year. Trained the basketball team through the season. Um, ended up getting a job through Academy Southland paid um, out of the internship. And then I just worked there until the end of the year using them as references. I mean, I um, managed to get in with the breakers in um, Auckland. And then I got to, yeah, everything just kind of like filled in line from the third part of my degree. And everything just kind of made me drift towards Auckland. So I had this breakers opportunity. I got accepted into AUT for post-grad. Um, I mean, yeah, I just started thinking more about career from here, uh, more towards the strength and conditioning side in the online world. Um, and then, yeah, that's pretty much that part. I mean, it's, it's a quite an extraordinary journey as well. And like, there's so many things in there that I'm sure could be almost a podcast for mm. themselves. But you, you sort of mentioned in passing that you, you started lifting weights when you were first in the gym, you were doing cleaning work. Yeah. At what point did you start thinking of powerlifting or did you start like, and when you did that, was it because you were strong or just because you were interested? Yeah. So like, cause when I first got out, when I was doing my body weight stuff, um, I was doing Taekwondo at this point. So just Taekwondo and boxing and martial arts stuff, but it was only body weight stuff. Um, when I started working in the gym and that part of the diploma, I got into bodybuilding. So bodybuilding was the first like, like resistance training kind of sport that I had dabbled with. So I competed in bodybuilding for, um, I think about two years. Um, and that was the initial part of, of lifting weights, which was just like, you know, bodybuilding type stuff. Um, just shaping my body and everything more nutrition and, and bodybuilding. After this for a couple of years, in my final year of my degree, I had stopped um, competing because I was just working way too much. And then a guy in the gym um, that I was working with for Anytime Fitness, he's now in the States. Um, he just managed to, he was a powerlifter himself. His name is Shane Josrak. I don't know if you guys have heard of him before. No. Um, but he lives in the States now. But anyway, he was trying to get us all into a little, um, a little work drew thing or whatever so he just got all of us workers to train for this novice comp at the end of the year like we literally had like probably like six weeks of training you know 
before we went in there like we had not been any we didn't know what we were doing we we're just like lifting weights um i was just following like a generic program online and he was like helping um some of the girls out there to, to train towards it and that and yeah we just um yeah trained towards this novice comp i had no idea what to expect i'm just like you, know, you just got a squat bench and deadlift um i had no belt sleeves or even squat shoes or anything i just had like my normal stuff and then we went to this competition and um yeah helped out with the numbers they were like way more than i've been doing beforehand and i'm like whoa this feels like awesome like you know lifting like this heavy stuff i didn't think i could lift before and i uh, actually did pretty well at this comp and um yeah i just i enjoyed it from there i didn't really think about the next comp afterwards because i moved to auckland but yeah when i moved to auckland i the first gym that i joined here was um Leeds mills and in this gym, I just came in and I started squatting. And it turns out that there was about three or four other competitive powerlifters in there as well. And then they just started talking about the regional comps coming up. So I'm like, oh, cool. Like I might train for that as well. I mean, yeah, I just trained towards that one at the start of the year when I did my postgrad. And I mean, yeah, of course, nationals after that. And then um, worlds the next year and then nationals and then this year. I mean, you're very understated in saying it, but by, by the time you go into nationals and then go into worlds, mm. you're obviously quite strong and doing quite well. Um, at any point in there, did you start getting formal coaching from anybody? Yeah. So up to that first comp in Auckland, which was my second comp, I had no, well, I had like a program that I was getting from, um, you know, the strength athlete. You heard yeah. Of those? yeah. Yeah. Bryce coaches me. Oh, true. Awesome. Yeah. So I, um, I got just a program through them at the start. Um, so I didn't get coaching cause I was, you know, all my money kind of went to study and like living up in Auckland cause I had no job at this point. Um, when I moved up here and yeah, I just got a program from them, which was like a 12 week program, I think it was. And they, um, yeah, did it all the way up to Auckland's after Auckland's that's when I started hearing about, um, like, that because I had no idea that Eric Helms lived in Auckland. I mean, I, I seen a little bit about 3D muscle journey and that. I mean, I um, learned that Eric Helms lived in Auckland and I'm like, oh shit, this is like pretty cool. Yeah, he so works at AUT, doesn't he? Where, where you're studying or where you were studying. Yeah, so he's, um yeah, in uh, the place called AUT Millennium, which is like the research um, place up there. Um, but yeah, I found out that he was here and I'm like, okay, cool. So I just applied for coaching through 3DMJ. I mean, I just started getting, um, I got assigned to Brad Loomis through them. Um, but yeah, he just helped me all the way through to nationals, like uh, proper coaching, coaching. And then I used him all the way through into worlds the next year. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of did my own thing after that. I mean, I just like had a bit of a break from power thing. And then I got another coach later on. Um, no particular reason. I just wanted to like learn some more from another place. And then that's when I got my coach that coached me all the way until this recent comp, um, Kedrick from the Strength Guys. Yep. Um, um, yeah. Is Kedrick at AUT or is another of the Strength Guys at AUT? Um, Kedrick's at AUT. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, to the listeners who who are not, I wouldn't say I'm in this world at all, but who who aren't like very down with you know research and things in strength and conditioning. Eric Helms did his PhD through AUT. So mm -hmm. some of the work on auto-regulation and things that has come out of there has come from them. And then Kedrick was studying weight cutting. Is that correct for powerlifting? Yeah. So yeah. it was topics along those lines, yeah. Yeah. And so like AUT itself 
seems to be one of the one of the places that is doing a lot of really good work in sports science. So it's a pretty cool place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely getting recognised in that area, like more the practical side of sports science. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know, although you were coached through the latter through the latter stages of your career, I'm curious what your experience both training in prison and in studying exercise science, and they're two very different things, what they did to, to shape your approach to training, whether it was in practices you did or just like mentally how it helped you. Um, oh, sorry. Can you repeat that again? Sorry. sorry yeah. Um, so, so the, the work you did training in prison and also mm-hmm. the things you've learned in your degree, how did uh, those two shape your, your career as a powerlifter? Yeah, so the stuff in prison was really good. I don't know if I just got lucky or if that's just how it is, but because they would teach you a lot of stuff, you would um, understand things before doing them. So it just allowed me to more appreciate giving a reason to everything opposed to just doing something, which helped me a lot with training. So like when I'm, um, you know, doing squats, um, no, I just really appreciate doing things um, correctly, like, you know, like the bracing, bracing and everything and, and movement wise, but understanding why I'm doing this instead of just like bracing and tightening up and going down and up. Um, and also in there with the um, academic side, it's just the whole uh, more smarter side of stuff. Like I used to have the mindset of, well, before I even just started training, I just thought that you had to just thrash your body all the time um to get anything done but the academic side of things just helped me kind of appreciate that there's many different approaches to things um it made me a little bit more open-minded to to different um areas which is kind of why i like getting different coaches as well because it just helped me um learn things from different angles and just keep myself a bit more open opposed to um just kind of like straight ahead um but yeah i don't know if i answered it but no it doesn't I've got a couple more questions that are almost wrapping up now. So mm-hmm. you you sort of started powerlifting actually quite late in this journey that you've described for us. Mm-hmm. What part do you think powerlifting has played in shaping your life as you live it now and making you maybe a happier person? Um, definitely like the feeling of being like strong, you know, like lifting weights definitely help the like confidence side of things, which indirectly helps everything else because when, I'm confident from lifting and that it makes me more, um, you know, for example, if I'm going to go into like a job interview or something, I'll lift before I go into the job interview. It just makes me feel um, a little bit more empowered and a bit more stronger and a bit more confident, which helps me gather other opportunities in life as well. So definitely that part there. Also, it helps me like break up, um, like studying to something else. So like it, it keeps me productive all year round without being, burnt out on one particular thing so if i'm studying for a while and i start getting burnt out i'll put more of my focus towards powerlifting for a while and i'll do that until i start to get burnt out I and mean, i'll go back to study for a while and then i'll just kind of keep switching them off so i'm always doing something but um never burning out at the same time sure the another sort of wrappy uppy question do you do you keep any contact with the people who you were friends with prior to prison now um one of them i do keep in contact with the guy that i met at the factory so he's currently still in prison right now um i don't want to and this is this is one of the hardest part about turning life around i don't want to 
associate myself with these people in person, but I'm happy to be supportive for um, like for the phone and for like the mail and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I answer the phone to him quite often when he calls and I just, yeah, we just have small talk and um, but it's pretty much just him. A few other people there, there on Facebook, but I don't really kind of talk with them, but uh, I do talk to them if they do reach out and need help with anything, but yeah. What type of advice do you give people who are in those situations? Um, definitely just to reach out. Like don't like, like if I could go back in time, I would have just reached out and asked for help because help is there, um, whether it's from someone close or from an institution or just somewhere. Like there is help there, especially for countries like, you know, especially for New Zealand in particular, like there's so many options out there. Um, and yeah, like just reach out. Don't be the big, like don't be a hero kind of thing. And um, yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help because it's definitely there. All right. And last question. We've gone this whole podcast and you haven't dropped any numbers that you've lifted or anything. Um, you've been very, very humble, but at nationals, you wilkes in the mid 500s. So it'd be cool if you could let us know what, what happened at your last competition. Like what did you lift? What are your future competitive plans? And also what are your future plans for, for your coaching business and for study? Yeah. So, um, recent comp, I, didn't do as well. Um, I got less than my last comp, but I was still like real happy with it. Um, I got my squat, which was um, 265 kilo, which was my opener. Um, I mean, I got a bench second attempt, um, 171.5. And then my deadlift, I got uh, 294.5 kilo, but that was actually got counted as 292.5 kilo because um, we missed we miscalculated um but the comp before that which was my best comp which was 275 kilo squat um third attempt um 180 kilo bench third attempt and a 300 kilo deadlift third attempt and this is at 74 kilos is that correct uh yep 74 kilo yeah yeah so pretty extraordinary lifting and what have you got another comp penciled in um now i'm actually taking a break from powerlifting for a while so i've just started um mixed martial arts a couple of weeks ago and I'm just going to try and do that for the next year or two and just, yeah, do something different for a while. I'll definitely make a comeback with powerlifting 100%. Um, but I just figured that I've still got 12 more years left and open. So I'm going to try and um, experience something else for a little while before I come back. Cool. And what about your coaching business and study? <laughs> yeah, so study-wise, I am looking into... Uh, uh, furthering into PhD later on. Um, not too sure what area I want to do it yet, but this is more later, later on, um, maybe in the next like year or two. Um, area wise, been looking at like sleep, um, sleeping and intensity of exercise, um, kind of thing. Like sleep's always interested me. So I kind of want to try find some kind of research question around that. Um, coaching wise, my career, personally is trying to go more towards the teaching side at the university. So I've, I've slowly been drifting away from coaching. I've just got my a very small group now. I've been giving away um, a couple of the clients, but I've just got a, a very small group now that I've just had for a long time that I want to keep uh, helping out. Um, but yeah, career wise, I kind of want to focus more on the academic side of things and get more into uh, the university teaching and everything. Cool, man. Um, that's been an incredible story. I feel like, 
we've been going for a long time. We could have easily been going for three times as long. Um, but why don't we have a very quick break there? And then we're going to hit you with the four questions that tell us everything that we need to know about a person. Okay. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. We're here with Chris Kennedy and we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Chris, you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, let's do it. So question one, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? I'll say Gandhi, eh? Gandhi. Gandhi. How yeah. come? Why Gandhi? I don't know. I think he's like a big like um, peace symbol out there, eh? Like, I just feel like... Um, he'll just make me like incredibly like relaxed and like chill and like stress free in that for dinner. I've got a logistical problem. I'm 90% certain that Gandhi's vegetarian. Oh, oh yeah. I don't mind that. For I guess for one meal, if you're more <laughs> picking his brain, that'd be okay. Well, you can go out yeah. to dinner with someone who's a vegetarian. It doesn't mean you have to eat vegetarian. Yeah. But you can't take him to like Brazilian barbecue. Like it'd be a bit average. <laughs> what would you get? What type of dinner would you would you want to go to? Gandhi or otherwise? What's your favorite? Um, like me personally is either Indian, like just traditional, mm. like when um, butter chicken. See, that, that's a good or, meal for a vegetarian. Yeah, or just Gandhi. <laughs> pres- yeah, that would go well. Yeah, what else? Um, or burger. I'm a yeah. I'm guilty for burgers. Probably not that one with Gandhi. Stick to, yeah, probably Indian's best. All right, question two. All right, question two is who's your favourite athlete of all time? Um, I'll probably say Usain Bolt. Mm. Yeah, good call. I think we've had, we did have Bolt. Wilkes said Usain Bolt. Yeah, Robert Wilkes said Usain Bolt. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was going to say this question's a bit redundant, but why? <laughs> Oh, okay, bastard. Nah. Um, <laughs> I just like his style, eh? Like, he's just real um, confident in what he does. Like, he's he doesn't just, like, you know, be confident and not do well. Like, he, he, he just is just confident and he just does his thing. And you can see the passion in his eyes about it as well. Like, he, he just loves it. So, I, li- I like seeing that kind of stuff. I was going to say, there's something very attractive about athletes who are who look like they're having fun. You know what I mean? Like, like he kills it and you can tell he's a winner. Like he wants to win, but yeah. he enjoys the process of doing it, you know? Yeah, man. He like smiles at the camera when he's like not even finished the race, you know, like he's just, he's just funny. So, yeah. Also nothing worse than fake, like not fake confidence, but like overconfidence. Like yeah. guys who are confident and can't back it up. That's, that shoots me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think some athletes, it's like a tool in the toolbox to like act overconfident to try and G yourself into success, but it just doesn't mm. work. Yeah, in basketball, yeah. in basketball, we call it irrational confidence. So it's like oh, guys yeah. who guys who take shots who, that they shouldn't take and stuff. They're like the guys you don't want on your team. Yeah. <laughs> well, I take shots I shouldn't take when I'm talking to girls at the bar. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Chris, question three, mate. Which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh, I reckon um, I'm going to say Jason Stratham. Okay. <laughs> Jason Stratham, is there, a particular, is there a particular role that you think you're like him in or just generally you look like him? Um, I reckon just because I'm like balding as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Can't tell. You got, a, you got the hat on. You're lucky this <laughs> is an audio podcast, man, or else people would just be seeing forward for days on you. Um, <laughs> that, have you seen, there's a movie, it's, I think it's called Spy, 
and it's got that chick like her name might be Melissa McIntyre or something. She's she's the chubbier one. I think she was on SNL, and Jason Statham plays a role in that movie, and he plays as like a really straight face, like he's the super alpha spy, and mm-hmm. all he ever does is boast about the missions he's completed, and it's so funny. I don't have you seen it. <laughs> No, I haven't. It's piss funny, man. Like the movie itself is not that good, but everything Jason Statham says is absolute gold because he just, like all his other characters are so macho and so serious and he just does that but takes it to like 13 out of 10 and it's so funny. Like highly recommend. It's good. What's it called again? Spy. Spy. I think it's called Spy. Oh, yeah. Check it out. All right. Question four. Your life is being made into a movie montage. You get to choose the music that it's set to. What music would you pick? Um, probably go Till I Collapse by Eminem. Laps? Till I, I, till I Collapse. Oh, Till I Collapse. Yeah. Classic lifting song. Is that like your third attempt song? Um, no, my third attempt song, if I, if I got to choose my third attempt song, it would be Metallica. Um, uh, what's it called? Into Sandman. Um, yeah. Usually it's like that sometimes like sinks in line because that plays at like every single power thing on here. But um, yeah. Classic. Enter Sandman, not to be confused with Mr. Sandman. That would not be quite, quite get you tune up. Uh, Chris, it's been a real pleasure having you on, man. It's been a really, really enjoyable episode. Before we let you go, do you mind just letting everybody know your socials and where they can get in contact with you if they did want to work with you or talk to you or just reach out about anything? Yeah, so my um, my Instagram is probably like the easiest place to get in touch with me. Um, my handle is um, just Chris Powerless. So no no spaces or full stops or anything. It's just Chris Powerless. Um, yeah, that's pretty much my main thing that I actually am able to reply to. Otherwise, it's just like an email, but I hardly ever check that anymore. So we'll just yeah keep the Instagram handle up there. Nick, thank you so much, man. Um, I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. And we might talk to them next week. You never know. We will because we have Joe on. Yeah, that's right. We've got Joe Stanick coming up next week. Oh, nice, nice.